Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah Lutheran Church's Bible study class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we are continuing our series over the book of Revelation. Enjoy. Okay, well, let's get uh, get started into our uh, second second lesson as we're looking at the book of Revelation. We're still kind of in the introductory uh, aspect of that, but you might remember that that last week we took a look at kind of what we would probably call foundations of biblical interpretation, and and we did that in a kind of broad, general sort of broad stroke way, and then we kind of uh, narrowed it down into the book of Revelation itself. And so, um, I want to say it again: is that most con- and I use it, I always use this phrase biblically conservative. You hear me say that all the time. The, uh, the tools or the principles of biblical interpretation that are used by biblically conservative churches or biblically conservative scholars is pretty much across the board. There's a few, a few differences in there. But the biggest difference is, is that biblically conservative uh, scholars and interpreters and, and believers... Number one, they believe that the Bible is the Word of God. So they, there's not, a, there's not a, a, a distinguishing between parts of the Bible that we would say are God's Word and parts of it that are questionably God's Word. Or that somehow parts of God's Word has authority and then parts of God's Word doesn't have authority. That, that's consistently taught and believed in, in biblically liberal uh, settings. But that is not the way it is in biblically conservative. And so even if you think in terms of Lutheran, there are biblically uh, conservative Lutherans, of which our church body is, uh, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, Wisconsin Synod is another one where we are more conservative, whereas the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America called the ELCA has gone way, way to the liberal side, and they are among those that would uh, promote the idea that the Bible contains the Word of God. And I'm not talking here about individual uh, ELCA people, because there's a lot of really great conservative ELCA people. But I'm talking more at the seminary level, uh, certainly at the upper echelons of, um, of leadership and that sort of thing. So it's just to, to recognize that even within Lutheran, you know, the world of Lutheranism, there is a wide spectrum in terms of what people believe about that, okay? And that factors into then what you do with the Bible, and then in particular what you do with a book that is very, can be very confusing or can be very complex, or feel complex anyway, when you're trying to read through it in terms of what the book of Revelation is about. So does anybody remember... One of the, uh, in addition to the one I just said, uh, one of the uh, principles of biblical interpretation that we talked about last week. I won't take it personally if you don't remember, because I was in a fog myself. What? Do what? Parable. Well, parable is is one of the forms that it comes across as. But what was was one of the interpretive uh, principles that we talked about? Remember? Tim? Um, historical. Uh, historical. Uh, historical what? Uh, grammatical. Yeah, Tim, you have to read the whole thing, Tim, not just, <laughs> not just the part of it. Okay, so historical gram- grammatical is one of our principles. Is in other words, that we look at the, the history, we look at the context, we look at who was writing it, why they were writing it, who they were writing to, and we pay attention to what the original language says. Greek in the New Testament, Hebrew in the Old Testament. And so, yeah, that's one of the principles that we use. What's another one? Anybody remember? Yeah. Uh, scripture oh, yeah, that's the biggest one right there. Yeah, Scripture interprets Scripture. That if there's, and, and see, you can do that when you believe the whole Bible is the Word of God. See, that's how, that's how that works. Is Obviously, if you think, well, only part of the Bible is the Word of God, well, then how in the world can you apply the principle of Scripture interprets Scripture. So the idea of Scripture interprets Scripture, and we'll be doing that a lot in the book of Revelation, is that if you have a confusing passage in one section of the Bible, you can actually maybe go to another part of the Bible and you can get some explanation or you can at least get some sort of affirmation that 
the two of them go together. Sometimes the two go together, but they're, you're not clear on what the two mean, okay? And sometimes that is the case when we deal with the uh, book of Revelation. Okay, so, oh good, so you get a B plus in your memory, very good. So let's, let's get into our uh, work for today. So as we think about now specifically or more narrowly in terms of interpreting the book of Revelation, one way to discern all the different ways that people approach the book of Revelation is all you have to do is go to a Christian bookstore today. Do they still have those, by the way? Yeah. Or just go on Amazon if you want to do that, okay, or a Christian uh, publisher. And type in or go to the section of the bookstore where they uh, have commentaries or they have books written about uh, the book of Revelation. And generally, you'll get a, get a pretty good idea of where the, the heavy interest is that people have in interpreting the book of Revelation, and also uh, where the dividing line is in terms of what people do with it. All right? So basically, it boils down to, and if you want to use the chart there that I have for you, is the, the basic difference falls into the area of what people do with what's called millennialism, all right? And we're, we'll talk about what millennialism is. But if you look at the top three on that chart, they all have something in common. And that is the word millennialism in terms of it being taken as a literal thing, okay, is all part of each of those beliefs. The only difference is, is where the millennium, that is the thousand-year reign of Christ, okay, where that takes place. So people that hold to the, to the belief in post-trib premillennialism, okay, they believe that the thousand-year reign of Christ will take place after the tribulation. People that believe in pre-trib or dispensational premillennialism, they place it in a different place. And then those that believe in post-millennialism, they then place that in a different place. But what they have all in common is, the belief is, is that at some point in the end times, Jesus will return again and set up an earthly kingdom here on earth for a thousand year reign. That's the commonality that they have, okay? The difference between all those three and the fourth one is what's called amillennialism. And what amillennialism teaches, those that hold to that, is that when the book of Revelation talks about the thousand year reign of Christ, and we'll look at it in just a second, that that's intended not to be a literal reign, but it is a reference to a symbolic reign. So the idea of the reign is, is that the, the number thousand is meant to be taken symbolically, not literally as a thousand, and that the reign of Christ is already taking place. Where would it be taking place according to those that hold to amillennialism? If it's happening right now, that's what amillennialists would say. It's happening right now. We're in it. Well, people say, well, where, where's Jesus? We don't, we don't see the, the perfect kingdom. We don't see the, the glory of that kingdom. Well, where is it? Where is it? Well, what would amillennialists say? It's in here. See, it's in the heart, right? So that's, that's a big difference between those that hold to the uh, millennial, uh, millennialistic approach as opposed to the aha millennial. Okay, now, having said that, in the South, probably 75 to 80% of evangelical, maybe 100% of evangelical Christians, but probably if you think in terms of Christendom itself, if you don't include Catholics in the count, because Catholics will tip the scale. But in the South, the, the millennialistic uh, approach is the prominent belief. Okay, and we're, we'll talk. I've got some notes on where that uh, where that comes from and why that is and that sort of thing. Okay, so that's kind of an overview. So what I did was I put up on the board my depiction of the difference between the two. Okay, and I didn't place it in terms of 
where the thousand year reign takes place or anything like that. I'm just trying to illustrate the difference, all right? So in the book of Revelation, there's how many visions? How many visions are in there? Some of you are advanced in your, the classes that you're taking. So there's seven visions, all right? And so in the amillennialist view, the view is, is that the, the end times began when Jesus ascended into heaven, and they end when Jesus comes again on Judgment Day. And that the visions that are depicted in the book of Revelation are all part of what's happening today. In the, in the, uh, particularly the dispensational view of millennialism, the view is, is that uh, end times began when Jesus ascended into heaven, and they will end when Jesus comes again for Judgment Day, but in the meantime, each vision represents a different era. And each era is going to be sequentially occurring depending on what happens in history, what happens in modern times. Okay? That's a, that's a very basic or very uh, a pr- a primitive depiction of the difference, but you can see the difference. And so, for example... Because I mentioned in the South, the, the, the way prominent view is this, people that look at it this way are kind of viewed in that maybe you're not quite up with what the Bible teaches with respect to the book of Revelation. So there is a little bit of, oh, I don't want to say like competition or anything like that. I don't mean it that way. But each, each side sort of looks at the other one as if they don't quite have it all together. But this is not new in religious circles, right? We've been fighting over these things for centuries. And so this just happens to be one of the latest uh, manifestations of that. Okay, so any thoughts or questions, at least at this point? Hmm, very quiet. I love it. Okay. So let's go to the next page and take a look at the culprit. Okay, the culprit is Revelation 20, verses 1 to 10. So I just printed it all up, and uh, we'll just read it, okay? Uh, Would somebody read the first paragraph, please, out loud? And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the keys to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or saint, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Okay, so if you wanted to underline the key words that are part of the dispute is the thousand years. Okay? The thousand years. And so that, that's the dilemma here, is that does that mean literally a thousand years, so it's like a calendar of thousand years, or is the number thousand symbolic of something else, given the fact that the number thousand or uh, 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 numbers like ten and a hundred and different numbers like that are um, symbolic in the book of Revelation? As we talked about last week, it's a part of how apocalyptic literature is written. So that's part of the part of the question. Okay, would somebody else read? Uh, Uh, The next paragraph, please, out loud. Oh, yeah, please, Mary Jane. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Okay, so, you know, again, you can kind of see where it would be easy, or at least it would be make sense to kind of look at it like the story is being told of what will happen 
and that it would be that you would take it from a literal perspective. But there's also some other confusing things in there, right? There's the first resurrection, which sort of says, well, there must be a second one, and maybe there's, there's more. And then there's the second death is mentioned, okay? These are all phrases that we will see in the book of Revelation. Now, this is not until Revelation 20. So there's a number of things that will be... Um, uh, open, uh, open to seeing and, and reading throughout the book, but, but we're seeing those references for the first time. Yes, Tim. Um, when it talks about like the signs of the beast uh, being on like the hand, like foreheads and hands, I've heard like a lot of uh, people talk about how they're talking in the future about having like computer chips installed, and that's how they're going to be able to identify us. And they're saying like that's the six six six, that's the mark of the beast. I mean, is that just another way of looking at it as premillennialism, or what are your thoughts on that? I don't have any thoughts on that at all, because we're not there yet. Okay, so I'm just giving you the overview in terms of the difference between the two, but it sort of lends itself to that, and this happens for some people. Okay, so I'm trying to not, I'm trying to be charitable when I say it this way. Some people get very wrapped up in just trying to decipher in a very specific and literal way what each one of these symbols might mean, so much so that you miss the big message, okay? I mean, when you think about the big message, we talked about this last week, and that it's important to remember that. The big message is this right here, okay? Judgment Day. The, the problem with this is that it hadn't happened yet that we know of. I don't think Judgment Day has occurred yet, okay? Because we'll know when Judgment Day happens. There's not going to be a question about when it, when it happens. We will all know. So the problem is, is that we're sitting over here somewhere, and it hadn't happened yet, or maybe we're here, or I don't know where we are on that. And, and how do you know future stuff? Okay, so that's the first thing. And sometimes what can happen is we get so, um, uh, things are so upsetting in the present life that we say, oh, if only I know when the end will come, then I can be more ready or something like that, okay? And you st we get very detailed in terms of, okay, that's what this means, that's what this means. I'm not saying you're doing that at all. What I'm saying is there's a lot of people that are looking for certainty as being the source of their hope and comfort. And that's the thing that we want to remember here. I didn't actually write it down. I should write it down. Okay, that it, the t at the time when all this was being written, there was tremendous persecution going on of Christians. And so when persecution's going on, what is it that we're looking for? I'm looking for comfort. I'm looking for hope. I'm looking for a certain amount of certainty. And the question is, where, where do I find that? And what can happen is that if, if you're leaning this direction, then that it can be that you find your comfort, hope, and certainty in that, that, oh, okay, now I know. Well, this already happened, this already happened, this already happened. And maybe yes, maybe no. Now, the downside of this over here is that sometimes people over here become so focused on this that we're totally oblivious to everything going on here until things get bad enough. And that's kind of what's happening right now, is that, you know, our world has gone nuts. And, and people's beliefs is all over the place. And, and COVID and social justice and, and, and uncertainty and, and what's China doing today? I mean, there's, there's all these kinds of things going on that feel very um, disconcerting to people. And when that happens, it feels like life is kind of shaky, and so then we're all looking for comfort, hope, and certainty, and where do we find that? Okay, so, okay, now the third paragraph. Would someone read that, please, out loud? Okay, how about if I... Are you going to read it? Yeah, go ahead. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They march across the breadth of the earth, 
and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay. So again, see, a lot of pictures of some very vivid kinds of scenes there. And so what do you do with it? And so again, we will see in our lessons of Revelation 1 through 19, we're going to see some references to that. But there's also so some very interesting things in Revelation 20. Yeah, Sharon. I have a question. You know, I thought the beast was the devil. I have no answer to that because we haven't gotten to it yet. I, you're gonna, see, you're going to get frustrated by me, I can tell already, because you're going to want to know the specifics of what's being talked about in Revelation 20, and we haven't yet been exposed to Revelation 1 through 19, okay? So I'm not trying to be rude or anything, I'm just saying Revelation 1 to 19 holds a lot of the key to Revelation 20. So my mistake was putting Revelation 20, 1 to 10, <laughs> up here, right? Because it's already, but I do like the idea that it's getting your brains working. Because you're starting to say, well, what is that? Now, between now and whenever we do get to Revelation 20 in our lesson, like three years from now, um, <laughs> I would invite you to do the Scripture interpret Scripture thing. Start doing some investigation of, well... Uh, in, in most of the study Bibles, I would say probably um, go with the Lutheran study Bible. Obviously, that's my bias, of course. But the biblically conservative view, you could probably get some cross-references, and you could probably see some of what that would be about. We're going to do some of that in here. Okay, We'll do some of that cross-referencing here. But again, see, it, it does pique the imagination, does it not? I mean, it really does stimulate thinking about, I wonder what that is, wonder what that is. And so that's good. I want that to happen. But we're not ready just yet to look at specifically what is it, what could it be, and then what are the differences in the two approaches? Because this approach is different than this approach, and so this approach has some very specific things that it's looking at sequentially that in their minds have to happen before the end can come. Where this, this approach says it, it's all part of the bigger picture and at some point the end will come. So that may not be very satisfying for some people. I don't know. All right, so let's look at the, again, we're looking at the differences between the two approaches. So the first one is the amillennial approach views the reference to Jesus' thousand-year reign as symbolic, not literal. Each of the seven visions in Revelation is seen as descriptive of how life is in the, in the end times. The end times began when Jesus ascended into heaven, and they will finish when Jesus comes again on Judgment Day. In the amillennial view, there is no separate rapture other than on Judgment Day, when the dead are resurrected and caught up in the air. Amillennialism was the prominent orthodox viewpoint until dispensationalism became popular in the mid to late 1800s in the United Kingdom and in the U.S. It is still the viewpoint of Lutheran, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, and Anglican churches, to name a few. So, where Lutherans traditionally have resided is here. And that goes back to the Middle Ages. So like it or not, it's in our DNA. It just is, okay? And so I can tell you that from my own um, theological training and just kind of my own sort of like Jimati DNA, okay? This is where, this is where I reside, okay? Um, and and that would be more prominently felt in the upper Midwest from roughly St. Louis up, okay? All right? And in the South then, where uh, Lutheranism and well, to some degree Catholic, but mostly uh, Southern Baptist is, is the big one in the South, then that's, that's where this, this uh, perspective takes place, okay? Yes? Then in the second paragraph, or, yeah, when... 
Let's see. It, it refers to the first resurrection. Wouldn't that be when Jesus went to heaven? When we get to it, we can talk about that. <laughs> I made a huge mistake here. I, I, I thought that we could do that and it would not cause, you know, but apparently it's, yeah, okay. Well, uh, you'll get tired of me saying, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. You'll feel like you're on a trip with your father and he's going, no, we're not there yet. Janet, we'll be there soon. We'll be there soon. Okay. So is there any question about the amillennial? Oh, yeah. Well, one thing that I, as far as all of that group in one time All of that group? Okay, all right, I got you. And those separated, I yeah. also come to think about in Second Peter, it tells us a thousand years on earth is like a day in heaven. Mm-hmm. So it kind of makes it hard to sometimes separate going, okay, this hasn't happened yet because, well... Yeah, and and you'll see it in the notes. There, there is a difference. There, there's a different viewpoint from the from the millennial point of view versus the amillennial in terms of the role of history, in in terms of what we do with biblical interpretation. So, in the amillennial view, I mean, history is history, obviously, but there's not a lot of emphasis on trying to look at historical events and say, oh, okay, now we know that was prophesied by the Bible. Or that is a sign that we're that much closer to heaven. The amillennial view does not, doesn't do that. The amillennial view focuses in on, on the Scripture interpreting Scripture without worrying about different specific events in history. A good example is, um, how many of you remember uh, back in the 70s, the book by Hal Lindsey that was entitled The Late Great Planet Earth? A lot of us that were, well, I remember it because I was in youth group at that time in the 70s, and when that book came out, it created a, a huge fervor of interest as well as anxiety. Or maybe you might remember in the 80s when, or maybe it was late 70s, when did the Russians invade Afghanistan? When was that? Because I know in the 1980 Olympics was affected by, so it must have happened late 70s, I guess it was when it happened. That created a big fervor in the minds of people that hold to this view. Because the, 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 a lot of people were looking at the Russians in Afghanistan and then trying to identify where the plane of Armageddon would be. And then we can kind of figure out, okay, we must be close to the end times. And see, the, the amillennial view doesn't do that. The amillennial view looks at more, looks at it more in a symbolic way and would say, well, maybe, maybe we don't really know what Gog and Magog is. Instead of thinking that, well, it must be the Russians or it must be the Islamists or it must be whoever it is. Okay? And so that's why you don't, if you go to bookstores and ask for where is the section of the bookstore where they sell the books that uh, take the amillennial view? (laughs) Maybe if the person there knows what amillennial is even talking about, okay? you might find one or no books on it. But if you want to go to the bookstore and find something on dispensational uh, millennialism or premillennialism, you'll find tons of books on it, okay? So it, it just is what it is in terms of what it is that piques people's interest. Okay. Uh-huh. I think an important thing you need to remember in this study too is that, is that different interpretations of revelation by different church groups, that does not affect our salvation. It does not. Because, again, it's future, and, you know, how do I know? Everybody on that page believes in Jesus. Everybody on that board believes in Jesus. Okay? The, the other side of it is, and this is kind of where Pastor Coleman and I, we have some wonderful conversations. <laughs> Because I, I probably am a little bit more picky about some of this stuff, okay? 
And you can tell him I said that. I'm telling on him right now. Okay. Because sometimes we can take the view that says, if it's not a heaven or hell issue, then it's not as big a deal as if it would be. And I look at that and I say, that's true. But sometimes if you relegate something to only a heaven and hell issue, and you're not paying attention to the whole counsel of God in terms of the scripture, then I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to make that distinction. So yeah, these people are going to heaven, these people are going to heaven. But my concern always is, is in the meantime, what am I doing with the word? That's the deal for me. And that's just a difference in, you know, he and I just have that different perspective. But that's okay, because we're in that, um, we're still in that biblically conservative range of teaching and what we think about things. Okay? And plus, I am older than him. So let's face it, yeah, that's, yeah. Okay, I'm just confused on this dispensationalism. We're not there yet. (laughs) So let's go there. What's the death? Let's go there. Okay, let's do that. Okay, so now we can get into millennialism, that dispensational. So dispensation means is that these are different eras. That's what the word dispensation is talking about. Okay, that views the reference to Jesus's thousand year reign as literal, not symbolic. Each of the seven visions in Revelation is seen as a separate era of time and history, all moving toward judgment day. The dispensational view is illustrated on this page, okay? So you can see already that there is a complexity to this that is way more involved than this. And so I got this off, I got this off the internet, but it, it was under the heading of uh, dispensational premillennialism. Okay, so that's, that's the prominent view of uh, those that hold to the millennialistic view. So in the South, this is the prominent view. And so it's, it's quite complex. So, so where the cross is, that would be right here, Jesus' ascension, okay? And then the eternal state, that's over here where, where judgment day is, okay? So if you look at some of the things that are involved in the pre-tribulation dispensationalism, okay, there are some things in there like there is a, a resurrection of sorts where the righteous dead are raised, presumably taking place at the rapture. So maybe perhaps, um, what was that movie series that came out a number of years ago that was emphasizing the rapture? Left Behind, Left Behind. Kurt Cameron, that's, that was the series that came out. And so when that came out, a lot of people got very anxious because they were worried if they were true believers enough to be raptured into heaven. And what would be the appeal of being raptured into heaven before any of the rest of this occurs? What would be the appeal? You don't have to go through it. I mean, actually, that would be a pretty good, pretty good thing. But you can see where the amillennialist viewpoint would talk about, it talks about rapture, but it talks about it at judgment day. See, it doesn't talk about it as something uh, that happens prior to uh, judgment day. So there's not this sort of hoping that you will be uh, righteous enough or that you'll be faithful enough or true enough. Okay. And I've talked to any number of the kind of younger people that are kind of worried about whether or not they're true in their faith they're staying within God's will for their lives, and uh, uh, that somehow they would fall out of that uh, purity of their faith, and that would disqualify them for the rapture. So again, it, it just can happen that way, that sometimes you get over-focused on that, and then that becomes a source of the loss of comfort, loss of hope, and loss of certainty. And that's the caution with, uh, with this. So anyway, the idea is that when the rapture occurs, uh, at Christ, Christ descends and he takes the believers, the true believers up. And so then whoever gets left behind is left to deal with the tribulation, 
okay, the reign of the Antichrist. But during that time, there are some things that um, would be precursors to, uh, to the millennium. So the restoration of the Jews to Palestine, or Palestine, okay? Palestine, that's in East Texas, oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> conversion of the remnant of Israel. The temple gets rebuilt, and the priesthood, the sacrifices, and the rituals are restored. Now here's where that could have political ramifications, Because if history is seen as part of the things that have to happen in order for the end to come, then there would be some great interest politically or nationally in maybe um, increasing the likelihood that these things would happen. And some people have taken that view. Some people have taken the view in government that says, we need to promote this. In fact, we need to push this. Because if we push it and promote it and help make it happen for these reasons, not necessarily for political reasons, but just for these reasons, then we can perhaps move this along and hasten the coming of whatever that would be. Okay? That's not going to happen from the millennial point of view. Okay? So you're not going to hear Lutherans talking about this. I mean, you'll hear it talk about this, but you won't hear Lutherans talking about that from that perspective. It could make political sense to, to, for these things to happen, but not from a, uh, a religious point of view. Okay, and so then uh, after that, then we have the uh, Battle of Armageddon. That's the big battle that, again, if you've been raptured in heaven, you don't have to worry about that. Um, Satan is bound for, the, for, the, for that millennium. And then after that, Satan is loosed. Then we have Judgment Day, and then we have eternity. Okay, so we're going to be as we uh, as we work through uh, Revelation, we'll be pulling in um, some of the other scriptures that are in the Bible that are often used to support the idea. See, the idea of this does not only come from the Book of Revelation, but because this is this is determined to be the way it is, then scriptures are brought in to support that. Okay? So we just want to be able to talk about it from that point of view. Yeah? So um, the Lutheran uh, ones believe that scripture interprets scripture. Do the dispensationalism ones believe that world history interprets scripture? No, well, no, no, because, because dispensationalists believe that scripture interprets scripture. But they but they place a greater emphasis on what's going on in world history than we would. Okay. Okay. I guess I'm trying to figure out the uh, A ones believe this versus. Yeah. It's, it's kind of not a versus, even though we kind of make it that. But the emphasis of what does history tell us? See, that's kind of the, the point. How much weight do we give to the Russians invading Afghanistan? Okay, how much weight do we give to 9-11? From a political point of view, and certainly a national point of view, we would say, oh, I mean, we give it huge weight. But there are people that will take that view and they will look at that and say, oh, I've got the, I've got the Bible verses that predicted that. Okay. And so that's where you have, that's where now, you, you know, how much of it is the Bible says it, and then how much of it is that I want the Bible to say it, and so then I sort of put my own into that because this is the framework that I use. See, it's like, a, it's like this is a framework and that's a framework. And so it's very human of us to take our framework and then make, superimpose that on top of the Bible and say, that's how we make sense of things. Okay? This is general. This is specific. Um, and when you get, if you try to get specific, that's where you're kind of venturing onto thin ice. All right, let's just a little history here with uh, dispensationalism. Dispensationalism was made popular by a man by the name of John Nelson Darby of the Plymouth Beth- Brethren in the mid-1800s, initially in England and eventually in the U.S. It truly took off with the publication of the Schofield Bible, 
which contains extensive notes interpreting scripture through the millennial lens. Have any of you ever looked at a Schofield Bible? I used to have one a long time ago. I have to see if I, if I still do. It's, a, it's a, written by Cyrus, not written, but it was interpreted by a guy by the name of Cyrus Schofield. And, uh, uh, oh, it's incredible. The, um, the biblical scholarship is really quite good in the Old Testament and New Testament, but in the areas where it's written with apocalyptic literature, it's taken almost uh, literally through this lens. Okay, so uh, the example is I looked up one time Revelation 20 just to kind of see, and the the uh, text of the scripture was this much, and the notes were like this much. So so again it. It came along, if you think about it, what was going on in the U.S. in the 1800s that might have made that very attractive to people looking for comfort, hope, and certainty? Yeah, I mean, you talk about upheaval and you just talk about that. So again, it's not to condemn it or anything like that. It's just to say that sometimes what goes on in the the nature of upheaval in people's lives makes certain things more attractive to us, okay? Later, the formation of American Bible Institutes and conferences, such as the Moody Bible Institute, cemented millennialism in the minds and hearts of American evangelicals today. Dallas Theological Seminary, that's downtown, is one of the primary teaching seminaries that promotes this view. The other one locally is the Fort Worth Seminary, Southwest a seminary in Fort Worth. They both are pro- probably now almost all, well, for sure, all of the Baptist uh, pastors that went to seminary, not all of them did. But in terms of the Southern Baptist Convention, they either come through the Fort Worth Seminary or they come through Dallas Theological. Um, and then a large number of uh, non-denominational fellowship church, uh, the watermarks of the world, the, all, the, all the really big... Um, fellowship churches, non-denoms, their pastors have all been trained, if they went to seminary, and that's kind of a big if for some of them, but even if they went to Bible college, like to a Dallas Baptist or someplace, they, th- this is the prominent view that they are taught, okay? So, so that's, the, that's the DNA, right? And so that's the view if you go to a non-denominational church or if you go to uh, a Baptist church, you're still going to, Revelation is going to be viewed through that, through that spectrum. Okay? So among the central tenets of millennialism are, number one, which we love this, a high regard for the literal, plain reading of the Bible as the inspired Word of God. We, we want to celebrate that because it, it holds Scripture at, in a very high place which is so refreshing given how liberal the world has become and how disdainful the world has become toward the Bible and or toward Christians. And, and so we, we love that, okay? Second uh, tenet is that prophecy is linked to world history. So what goes on in world history is seen as something that was predicted in some way, okay? The problem being that there is usually a repetition of things happening in world history, and it's very difficult to link things. So, for example, St. Paul in his day thought that in his lifetime the end would come because he was looking at everything going on in his life. Luther thought in his day that the end time was very close because of all the things going on in his life. So it's always possible that... If you're living in that moment and you're thinking, oh man, I can't wait for Jesus to come, right? (laughs) It's very possible that you're going to look at things going on around you and say, oh, there's no doubt we're there, okay? And there's a lot of people saying that today. A lot of people, a lot of us are saying that. We're going, oh, can't wait till we get to heaven, okay? All right, Um, number three Problems in society are seen as evidence of the end times. That's very prominent here. Where where over here, problems in society have always been with us. So 
we address problems in society, but we don't link them specifically to, okay, we can say that we're, we're getting there, we're getting there, it's because the problems in society have always existed. That's one of the big differences, okay? And then the fourth one, I, I didn't realize this one until I did the research, and I'll explain what it means. God has a separate track of salvation for Jews and for the Christian church, okay? Now, what that means is, is that in the millennial view is that the idea that all Jews will somehow be saved, and that comes out ironically out of the book of Romans, not Revelation so much, that God has a special way that he has planned for that to happen. And it may coincide with the rebuilding of the temple and all the different things that go with that. So it's not, it's not saying that Jews get to heaven uh, some way other than through Jesus. It, that's not what it is. Jews get to heaven through Jesus. Okay, we all get to heaven through Jesus, right? But, but God has a separate plan for the Jewish folk of how that's going to happen than he does for the Christian church. In the amillennial view, the, the emphasis is on the idea that the Christian church is the new Israel, is the Israel of faith. So when we get to that, I'll explain it better. I'm tickling you right now. Just dangling this in front of you. Yes. Okay. So then uh, point two there, um, uh, or II. Uh, most evangelical churches and denominations in America hold to uh, one of the millennialistic viewpoints, most notably the Southern Baptist Convention, Bible churches, and the non-denominational fellowship churches. And again, that's primarily because their pastors and their deacons and their folks for a long time have been trained in that. And so then, you know, you're going to kind of go the direction that your, your spiritual leaders take you. Got your interest? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So what we're going to do is next week we'll actually get into the actual book. Yeah. What a relief that is. Yeah. But those of you that are asking questions about Revelation 20, um, you, have, you, have, you have a couple choices. One is you can be patient and wait for me to get there, okay? And, or number two, you can join Pastor Coleman's class and, and you can ask him all these questions and have the answers ready for when we finally get there, okay? And I will not feel threatened at all if you decide that you would like to do that. That would be so awesome. All right. Okay, any other thoughts? Okay, so um, two weeks from today, I will be uh, attending my spiritual retreat in uh, Phoenix. And so then um, Richard has uh, graciously agreed to take the class, and we'll be going through the uh, letters to the churches. So that'll be really kind of a fun, fun thing to uh, think about. So thank you for that. Did you have some thoughts about my spiritual retreat? I saw you kind of smile when you said that. Yeah. Are you familiar with that when I go to my spiritual retreat? And so if you, when I do that, um, you'll, you'll probably, probably notice how spiritual I am when I get back from that. So yeah. Yeah, Richard. Yeah. I have a question. Um, you mentioned... Um, the Lutheran, uh-huh. Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican. Uh-huh. Where are the Methodists and the Presbyterians? Well, they, it kind of depends. So it depends on how Calvinistic they are. Okay? I mean, to some degree, the Methodists and the, uh, the Calvinists historically kind of didn't get along because the Calvinists according to Calvin, believed in predestination, double predestination, and the Methodists kind of chafed at that because then it felt like, well, everything's preordained, and, you know, where does free will fit in? So there's always been this little bit of a, you know, a little bit of thing. And some of these arguments that we've been having since the Middle Ages go back to the original fights between Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli. You know, and I mean, that's going back to 1400s. So it kind of does tell you that we just really have never really changed, has it? We, we all still are fighting those same, those same battles. Okay? All right. All right, very good. Well, let's close with prayer, and we'll get out of here a couple minutes early. Father, thank you for bringing us safely here uh, today, and thank you for the wonderful weather that we're enjoying. 
um, the up and down nature of it is, and the extreme nature of it, does kind of get our attention a little bit in terms of uh, where things are and where we are in the world today. But the world today, Lord, is so confused. Um, there's people all over the map in terms of what they believe, and there are many people that just say, I don't believe in anything at all. And so the message that we, we can bring to the table is a message of hope and certainty and comfort, even in a world that has a hard time and maybe is even impossible to offer that. So bless us in the coming days of this week, dear Lord, and also bless us as we, uh, as we wrestle our way through the book of Revelation, seeking to find the big message that it gives to us, that the comfort and hope we find is in you and in our relationship with you. The fact that we're forgiven, the fact that we live in a state of grace, and that even though sometimes in life we look around and we wonder, uh, where is all this grace that you talk about? We know that it is in our hearts, Lord, and it's in the relationship and defines the relationship that we have with you. So watch over us this week, dear Lord. Challenge us in, in different ways and assure us that uh, your love is with us no matter what as we share that love with each other, and with the world around us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing His light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about His gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, Please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone, or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share his light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.